This podcast is brought to you by the film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn with an incredible ensemble that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, and Whoopi Goldberg. Ezra is a funny and endearing story about Max, a divorced father struggling to co-parent his autistic son, Ezra. When faced with difficult decisions about the future, they embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Deadline calls Ezra a touching testament to the power of love. In theaters May 31st. Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby, who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hi, this is Laura Vanderkam. I'm a mother of five, an author, journalist, and speaker. And this is Sarah Hart Unger. I'm a mother of three, a practicing physician, and blogger on the side. We are two working parents who love our careers and our families. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. Here we talk about how real women manage work, family, and time for fun. From figuring out childcare to mapping out long-term career goals, we want you to get the most out of life. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. This is episode 186, which is airing in late February for the first time. Uh, in this one, I'll be interviewing Joanne Lublin, who is the author of the book Power Moms. Uh, always a topic we're excited about here. Joanne it was a longtime Wall Street Journal editor who um, forged quite the trail there, raising her children while rising up the ranks of the journal. So she's going to talk about that. We're looking forward to hearing from her. While it is snowing outside as I am recording this, we are thinking of summer. Sarah, have you made your camp spreadsheet yet? I did start to make a camp spreadsheet. This was spurred on by, um, I read this fashion blog called Feather Factor, and she wrote a post about how like her kids had been rejected from camps because they were full. <laughs> she lives in California, so I'm sure it's just a very different scenario, and maybe they have more limited options, but I was like, ah! But then I realized we're not in that scenario here. I don't think any registration is closed. And in fact, the camp that I'm probably going to be sending the kids to hasn't even announced anything or opened, but I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. So I made this whole spreadsheet that involved sending the kids to a camp that was like a little bit of a drive. It was supposed to be like the best, most spectacular camp. And then I realized that 
we could probably have pretty good for like so much less annoyance factor, like much closer drive, better fit for all three kids, a comfortable place that we already kind of know. And really like, how bad could it be if they're going outside and doing stuff together and it's similar to school, but with more outdoor play, like seems fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I decided just, I'm going to keep it very, very simple. I may add like a week of horseback riding for Annabelle because her school actually finishes a week before the other kids anyway. So that's a nice opportunity to let her try something else. But otherwise, I think we're going to keep things very, very simple, low key. Yeah. For our listeners who are not aware of the camp spreadsheet concept, this is when you have the children on one axis, your various camp age children, and the weeks of the summer on the other axis. Um, I tend to do the children across the top and the weeks of the summer down the left-hand side. Um, this allows you to you know, mark vacations. And then as you're planning where children are at various different points, you know, notice how many weeks different kids are doing or that you can double up who's in which camp when. So if you have more than, for instance, one child <laughs> and your, camp, your summer schedule does not just involve like, you know, a nanny or um, one sort of summer daycare type camp or whatever, then this is a good way to keep uh, coordinated about this. So you don't accidentally sign three kids up for three different camps that are in opposite directions and you only have, you know, one driver or you double sign up for a week or realize you have no care for one week or something. It just helps, you know, we love a good spreadsheet here at Best of Both Worlds, right, Sarah? Yes. And I intuitively set mine. I didn't look at yours, but I set mine up in a very similar manner. But then when I was just looking at like, oh, maybe this could be here, this could be there. I'm like, I am highly motivated for all three kids to be in the same place. (laughs) That outweighs like almost any kind of other bells and whistle that could be present. And I know, you know, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, I, I, I have not made the spreadsheet yet. I mean, I started signing up, but the only camp that I've signed really kids up for yet Uh, aside from one that's offered at Alex's school, like before the public school ends, but after his school ends, is the camp that I was very disappointed had canceled last summer and had this sort of not wonderful approach to the whole refund thing, which I get. It's a small business, but they had been basically saying, we uh, are, if you want a refund, we're going to have, we're going to hold on to your money for like a year and then you're going to get 70% of it back. I'm like, what? They're like, or you could take a 20% credit and enroll the kids next year. And I mean, again, I get it. I was really upset at the time. But on the other hand, since I was going to probably send the children to this camp again, giving somebody a loan at a 20% annual interest rate is not bad at all, right? Like that's like credit card style interest. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just go for that. Um, So I did take a big chunk of my credit for this summer and have signed three of the children up for multiple weeks there. So that is done. Um, But I had done everything by like January 1st last year. And then of course, got totally burned when everything canceled. (laughs) So um, I've been a little bit shy about doing that. January 1st is early. Most of our camps don't even release like information until sort of the February to March um, time. And this must be a regional thing because that's why I was so shocked about that California person. I was like, what? Well, it's more that it's not that they would have been full. It's that they offer their early bird discounts, right? If you sign up. 
um, by that time. So that was what, what made the, <laughs> the camp that canceled and was going to only give you 70% back a year later. It's like, because you've now had my capital for a year and a half. <laughs> but uh, but 20%, but the 20% now it's like, is, it's actually it's a pretty good investment. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good investment. It was a good investment. And they may have gone out of business, I guess, if they didn't do some deal like that. So I yeah. guess it's good. They're, yeah, they're no, I get it. I get it. It was just annoying at the time. <laughs> but and anyway. of course, we, and we, I was going to say, we totally understand if, if, in your area, if you're not, if you don't feel like you're able or ready or safe to do camp, I mean, ugh, I hope, I hope, I hope that maybe you'll be pleasantly surprised by summer, as rates are starting to trend down and more and more people are vaccinated. That hopefully there'll be more options in almost every area. Hopefully, <laughs> sounds good. Yeah, but our kids have been back in school for the year, so that's happened fairly well, and you know, so there we go. All right, well, let's dive into the interview with Joanne Lublin, author of Power Moms. Um, so we'll get right to that. Well, Sarah and I are delighted to welcome Joanne Lublin to the program. So Joanne, could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, everyone. I'm Joanne Lublin. I am a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal and the author of two books about working women. And your newest one is called Power Moms, which is out around now. Tell us a little bit about what are Power Moms. Well, it's a name I kind of made up, but a Power Mom I define as a woman who has become a an executive in a business and also has children. She didn't necessarily get to be the executive level when the kids came along. But in order to get interviewed for my book, you had to have worked at some point for a sizable company with at least $100 million in revenue. I didn't care where you were working now or even if you were no longer working because a number of those women I interviewed are entrepreneurs. And I ended up interviewing 86 power moms from two generations. And what, what did you learn as you were, you were doing this? Well, what I was trying to find out is what had changed, what had gotten better in terms of the difficulties of navigating life and career between the boomer generation, which is my generation, and the Gen Xers slash millennials. So half of those 86 women were boomers and the other half were predominantly Gen Xers, about two thirds Gen Xers, one third millennials. Separate from those 86 moms, I also interviewed 25 adult daughters of the boomers to find out what was it like growing up with a mom who was really committed to her career. Did they want to be like mom? Did they want to be somebody else? And did mom end up being actually a secret weapon for those young women as they now are joining or have joined the workforce? So it's uh, interesting because you are one of those boomer power moms yourself. And, and I know that your adult daughter <laughs> plays a role in this book, too. So you joined the Wall Street Journal in, what, 1971, right? That's right. And you raised two children while you were, you know, rising through the ranks there, becoming, I think, the first uh, female head of a bureau for the Wall Street Journal? Well, I was actually the first female deputy head of a bureau. Okay. <laughs> but gotcha. at that point, we, ours was the only bureau that was run by two women because my bureau chief was a woman who had become the first female bureau chief of a Wall Street Journal bureau in Boston, Kathy Christensen. She did so well there. They made her bureau chief in London, and then she picked me as her second in command. 
So the women were running London for the for the Wall Street Journal. We and, were. And, <laughs> as you were doing this, I wonder if you could just describe for a lot of our listeners are, you know, in, in the Gen X millennial mom uh, phase of this. Raising children in the 70s and 80s while building a career. I mean, what are the things you think that modern moms might not know about what that was like? Well, one of the things that it was very, very different is that this was something weird. This was strange, okay? For the most part, women were not seen as being in socially acceptable roles to wanting to be committed to their careers and equally committed to their children. And so you kind of had to hide the fact that you had children as you worried about it hurting your credibility. We were very much the trailblazers, and so we didn't want to do anything that would detract from being taken seriously by the guys. And have you found that um, women who are in that sort of 35 to 45 age range of your, the younger executives you interviewed, are they more open about being mothers at the workforce? They're not only more open about being mothers, but they recognize that the trail has been blazed for them by those boomers. And they believe that they deserve to be accepted as people who have both a parenting hat and an employee or an executive hat. And as one younger woman put it, who I interviewed for the book, she says, we have earned it. And she obviously had read my first book, which is called Earning It. Do you think this is true, though, for men as well? I wonder, I mean, did boomer men probably didn't talk about their kids much at the office either. And, and I wonder if this is something that, you know, younger men are more open about having, you know, parental involvement uh, as, as well. I think definitely that is another very significant shift between the generations. But I also think we're still burdened by social expectations, by gendered norms of what men and women alike are supposed to be doing once they have kids. Because we live in a society that still puts such a high priority on people who work all hours. The 24-7 notion of being always on is something I write about. And, and when it comes to men, there's still this perception that men's first priority should not be their family. It should be their job. Which is why even as companies have broadened their quote-unquote maternity leave to define it as parental leave, you still see a relatively low percentage of men taking advantage of a benefit that is available. Did you find with the um, younger executive moms that things were kind of different in their households? Do you think that they're, um, I'm curious if they were still dealing with these expectations um, as much or precisely because they were so high up in, in their careers that um, these issues weren't as important for them? No, what has changed is, number one, there is a much greater understanding in the workplace that we don't stop being parents when we start work, whether we're working from home or working in the office. And at the same time, because of the gains of that boomer generation in the workplace, these younger women have role models of women who have gotten into much higher level jobs than they're currently in when they start having families and who have made it possible. But the most important change, it seems to me, is that these younger women have different expectations of their spouses, you know, whether it's a husband or a life partner or a, a wife. 
And they set those ground rules if they're smart at the outset of that long-term relationship about the fact that they want to have this be if they're going to have kids, a co-parenting setup. If they're going to be setting up household together, you know, one person should not bear the entire load, especially when it comes to what is called the third shift, which is the mental load, the person who's keeping track of everything. And there are numerous examples in the book of these younger women not only standing up and insisting on this as the sort of prerequisite for getting long-term involved with their, their mate, but pushing back when things don't seem to be going along the lines that they thought everybody had agreed to. I love the example of this lawyer whose husband also has a high-powered career, and she says, you know, we're not really sharing on the child care and child responsibility side of things like we had talked about. And he's like, you're absolutely right. You know, I can see you're overwhelmed. How about I start making the doctor's appointments and taking the kids for the pediatrician checkups? She said, I think that would be great. And then he says, and what's the doctor's name again and his phone number? Yes. Yeah, so there was clearly some uh, <laughs> gap between uh, expectations and, and what had been happening. Uh, we're going to take a quick break um, for ads. We'll be right back. So this is Laura. I am here with Joanne Lublin, who is the author of Power Moms, How Executive Mothers Navigate Work and Life. Um, Joanne spent her career at the Wall Street Journal, um, leading the many aspects of the paper there, writing a column about uh, executive careers. So Joanne, uh, you know, you and your husband, it sounded like you had a fairly egalitarian setup, um, you know, getting married in the you know, 70s and raising your kids in the 80s, I think it was, you actually put something in your marriage contract, I guess, about uh, household duties. We did. And this marriage contract was something that was also a little bit out of the ordinary at the time and remains so. Although there are many couples who enter prenuptial contracts in order to protect themselves in case of divorce. We entered into a marriage contract in order to protect our marriage and make sure it would be a long-lasting and a happy one. And so the only provision of all the various aspects that we drafted that survived being translated into legal language by the lawyer was the one that my fiancé, future husband Michael, wrote. And it was as follows. Household duties shall be shared equally, but not necessarily cheerfully. <laughs> I love that. And how did that work out? Uh, I'd say it's worked out pretty well to the point that when our son got engaged to his now wife, I offered them, in fact, sent them a copy of the marriage contract. And Dan came back and said, you know, mom, we don't think we need anything this formal. But, you know, I did observe the role model growing up. And so once they got married, whoever cooks, the other one cleans up. And I said, yeah, but when I'm at your house, I always see your wife doing the wash. And he said, yes, but mom, you don't see me doing all the folding. 
Ah, <laughs> you weren't observing the folding. Well, it sounds like they picked up a lot from you. And in terms of your adult daughter, because that was an angle of uh, Power Moms as well, that you interviewed, you know, two dozen adult daughters of these um, boomer Power Moms. How how did it tend to play out with the adult daughters? Because it sounded like it could kind of go both ways. Sometimes, you know, young women are like, I don't want to be anything like my mom. And sometimes they're like, wow, my mom has a lot of connections that can really help me if I, if I avail myself of that. Well, it seems to me that the adult daughters actually did want their bread buttered on both sides. A lot of them do not want to be a high-powered senior executive because they saw how stressful and difficult that was for their moms when they were growing up. But at the same time, they want to be successful in whatever line of work or profession that they have chosen. And when they start to finish college and look to joining the workforce, they discover that, guess what? Mom knows a lot about the ins and outs of getting hired, getting promoted, getting noticed. And she's hugely networked and can not only arrange critical introductions, but she can be a career coach at preparing the daughter for a job interview, revamping the resume, being the go-to person when the first time they run into a a huge issue on the job. There's this great example where this uh, adult daughter of the boomer mom essentially summons her mother, who's the CEO of a major business unit at a big company, out of a meeting uh, because the daughter has been told she has to discipline one of her direct reports, and she's never had to do that before. She's a first-time supervisor, and she's terrified. How does she tell somebody that they're not cutting the mustard? Well, mom would be very helpful in that, I'm sure. One of the things you, you know, C-suite moms, CEO moms, clearly have resources that are not necessarily available to everyone who's attempting to build a career and raise a family at the same time. And yet you note that the affluence doesn't necessarily exempt you um, from these work-life struggles. And why is that? I mean, I think a lot of people assume that if you have the resources to, you know, hire nannies, get your house cleaned, you have no problems. And, and you're saying that's not true. Well, that is exactly the point that I make in Power Moms. You know, if it's still hard for these women of privilege to make this work, just multiply that 10, 20, 50, 100 times, you know, for the, the single mom who's working maybe two jobs and they're both minimum wage and and has you know little resources to fall back on and the reason it remains difficult in different ways for these women of affluence goes back to this whole notion of the fact that we have unconscious biases and gendered expectations as to the roles that that women will play in the home Plus, the men don't get a lot of support from their male colleagues for wanting to be highly involved dads. And so they, too, are not necessarily there when needed or, you know, keeping track of this or that appointment or knowing the pediatrician's name and phone number. And so the whole idea here is we are evolving as a society. We've come so far, you know, from what the baby boomer moms were experiencing when they entered the workforce and when they started having kids. But we still have a long way to go. And the way to make it happen faster is to have employers recognize 
uh, the needs of not just working moms, but the needs of working parents, and more broadly, of the need to have maximum flexibility in how you treat your employees, because everybody's got a life outside of work, whether it's children, dogs, elderly parents, or whatever. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about work-life sway, um, as this is a phrase I hadn't heard used before, but is that part of you know modern technology enables us to go in and out of work and life roles. And so that, that changes the equation a lot. How, how is this playing out in, in people's lives now? Well, it's also a phrase I had never heard of, but I became so enamored of it that I wanted it to be the subtitle of the book. I wanted the original title to be Power Moms, Secrets for Practicing Work-Life Sway. And the publisher was like, ah, you know, <laughs> Nobody no. knows what that is. <laughs> exactly. Those were her words. She so, was like, so nobody will All right. What is sway? Define it for us then. And I was introduced to this concept by the very first you know, younger generation executive mother that I interviewed for the book. And so the whole idea here is that work-life balance is a completely impossible ideal. It's like maintaining a yoga pose for 24 hours on one foot. And so because we know that work-life balance is an impossible ideal, we instead aspire to practice work-life sway. And that's the concept that when we have to be totally there for our job, we'll be 110% in the moment focused on that work task. But if life, such as the needs of children, intrudes, we're not going to get all bent out of shape. We're going to go with the flow and we're going to sway to that part of the focus of our life. And when we end up working from home, all of a sudden we have to be playing work life sway lots of times during the day and not get all bent out of shape and instead be willing to, to, to go with the flow, but perhaps invest in some really high quality noise canceling headphones. That is definitely something that a lot of people are feeling the need for now. But, you know, technology is kind of this, this double-edged sword because, you know, one thing I see that a lot of people are able to do is leave the office at a, you know, back when people went to offices, but leave the office at a reasonable time, go home, spend the evening with their families, do more work at night after the kids go to bed in a way that would have been far more difficult before the advent of laptops and cell phones and, you know, high-speed internet connection from the house. I mean, where do you come out in, in this? You know, is, is it good? Is it bad? Is it both? It's a mixture of both. I can tell you, you know, dial-up was really slow. You know, when when we first got it at home. And so you were actually inclined to stay late at the office if you had tasks to complete. And, you know, that meant that you didn't get to see your kids for very much if, if you had to work late. Thanks to advances in technology is another reason why these younger executive moms are able to flourish on their jobs and with their families. But it comes at a price. And that is you can be always on. There were several of these women of, in their 30s and early 40s who not only keep their cell phone on, but they sleep with it by their bed or even under their pillows. That seems like it would be slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> not to mention when it rings at two o'clock in the morning, but they want to be reachable. No, the whole idea here in practicing worth life's way is that you choose to be where you're putting the focus of your attention. And if necessary, you draw boundaries. 
okay, when when appropriate. And that does mean you turn off the darn phone and you certainly don't sleep with it under your pillow. Exactly. So I enjoyed one particular, um, you know, reading the book and reading about your career, the various decisions you made along the way. So you were willing to move your family to London, you know, their family could relocate with you. But on the other hand, you were not, you wound up not going into space. Um, There was a potential to be a journalist going into outer space. So let's talk about what, why is outer space not okay? Moving the family to London was okay? Well, the distance was a little bit less to go to London. (laughs) Although I have to tell you, you know, our older child who was then seven, our son was very upset, did not want to leave the only home he had ever known his entire life. You know, his second grade elementary school was two blocks away. Uh, You know, he basically locked himself in his room and announced that he wasn't going. And we said, well, we're selling the home. And he yelled back, you'll have to sell me with it. Going into space, yes. So uh, how we dealt with that, I sent my husband in to go deal with Dan. It was more than I could handle. And he told Dan that he should look upon this as a four-year vacation. And Dan said, oh, okay. So when we come back from London, will we come back to our house? And his father said, no, but we'll come back to an even better house. And then he was willing to move. Our daughter was only three and a half when I got the promotion. She didn't really understand. She told people that we had to fly to London because it was too far to drive and that when she got there, she was going to have tea with the queen. But (laughs) fast forward, forward, when we moved back to New York, she's the same age as her brother had been when we left London. The same hysterics. (gasps) How can you take me away from the only home I ever remember? Blah, 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 blah. So, In terms of your original question, which was about outer space, there was a competition held uh, long before I got the opportunity to move to London where they were going to pick a journalist to be uh, an astronaut. And I thought this would be really, really cool. And um, the kids did, too, when I first told them about it. I never got as far, frankly, as filling out the application because I then had to explain to them that I would be gone not for you know, one or two days, which I occasionally did for reporting trips, but probably for weeks and months to be trained to be an astronaut. And that was not something that they were willing to accept. And I realized it wasn't something I was willing to accept either. But frankly, my chances of getting chosen would have been slim to none. So it wasn't a hard dream to put back into the let's dream about it at night. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and not do it during the day. Well, you know, I can't say that I'd be really excited to get on a rocket either. So <laughs> it was, um, that will probably not be part of uh, my career plans uh, either. So Joanne, we always end our interviews with a love of the week. So something that has been exciting for you lately. Um, what, what, what's really cool in your life right now? Well, I think the most exciting thing that has happened to me lately is that the Wall Street Journal, where I remain a regular contributor, not only chose to publish an excerpt from my book, an excerpt that described ways to ditch working mother guilt, but they highlighted it with a promotional blurb on the front page of the journal, and it featured the photo that ran with the excerpt and my name and the description of the book using the subtitle, which said something to the effect of Joanne S. Lublin talks about how executive mothers navigate work and life. 
And so uh, getting back on page one of the journal, having not been there for a couple of years, was pretty exciting. <laughs> it's always good to be. All right. Well, we have to go really quickly into, all right, are we going to ditch the work mom guilt? Like you have uh, the answer to that? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I think the, the younger women have come up with some pretty clever approaches ranging from essentially taking one or two days vacation every quarter as mama days and spending each of those days with one of your children to making sure that you set aside me time, you know, whether it's uh, two hours every Sunday morning and, and your partner or husband or, or wife is in charge of the kids and you have total time to yourself. These are lots of ways of, of ditching working mother guilt. Sounds good. Well, Joanne, thank you so much for joining us. And our listeners can check out Power Moms, How Executive Mothers Navigate Work and Life. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. That was awesome. Um, and now we are going to go to our Q&A. And this one was sent in by Diane. This is a fairly long question, so I will try to abridge it a little bit. Oh, actually, I have an announcement that I didn't put on here. If you would like to leave a vocal question, um, there's a link on my blog. It's actually under the Best Laid Plans page, but I will put it on the Best of Both Worlds page as well, so that if you would like to hear your voice on this podcast, that you could actually uh, click on that link and send in a audio question. Okay, sorry, that was a surprise for Laura, but since I have that capability, I could use it for either podcast. Okay, so the question is, I've been trying to track my time while unemployed, and I'm finding that there are sometimes large chunks of my day that I don't have any recollection of what I was doing. Usually they are the one or two hour chunks that can be summed up as putter and watch kids. And sometimes it literally says that on my log. I don't feel great about these chunks, and I'm not sure if I need to shift my thinking about my time, or do I actually just need better strategies for what I do with my time when I'm with my kids? My kids are nine, three, and one. My nine-year-old needs some distance learning supervision, to stay on track, but the three-year-old is pr pretty good about playing by themselves. But since they've taken him out of preschool uh, because of COVID and because of the mom being unemployed currently, they're doing about 30 to 45 minutes of preschool curriculum per day. Their one-year-old alternates between clinging barnacle and destructive terror and does not nap consistently. <sighs> Which is all to say, I find myself with lots of times when I have to be vigilant, but not necessarily interactive. She's thinking, there must be more I can do right now. At times, I have projects I want to work on. I've started a blog. I signed up for online classes. None of these things are really related to my job, career, and they all feel like vanity projects, but they're things I'd like to be spending my time doing. So I feel like I'm stuck between a narrative that being a mother is enough and an alternative one that we can fit everything into our lives if we prioritize and are efficient with our time. Here's an interesting uh, sentence I'm going to include. Ironically, I felt happier with how I used my time when I was working 60 hours a week. I know you guys usually deal with issues of work and life, but wondering if either of you have thoughts as to what the balance is when one isn't working and just being a full-time parent. We thought this was a great question. Yeah, well, and even if you are working, um, if you have a one-year-old, I mean, you have many hours of small child vigilance on your schedule. And yes, it is tough to use it for much of anything. Though, again, the kid, and, and I totally get what she's saying, like the kid will play independently for a while. Like you are just sort of sitting there watching them. And you're like, well, I could use this time to do something. But then, of course, you know, then they try to wander off and fall into a door and, you know, <laughs> to watch. And so you can't really get involved in anything but you feel like you could do something. So, of course, what do we do? We wind up scrolling around on Instagram and then feeling like, Bleh, you know, like life is 
passing me by as I am looking at people's carefully posed family photos and matching shirts, right? So just to say, we totally get it, sympathize. And, uh, you know, whether this is because you are actively, you know, you're job searching or you're, you know, taking some time out while your job has ended for a bit, or if you're just, this is what you spend your weekends doing. <laughs> like, yes, this is this is part of the nature of having one-year-olds and and we're there with you. We're <laughs> totally there with you. I would say that it's probably more mental than anything else. I think she should make herself a very, very short list of things other than one-year-old care that she wants to do on any given day. And after she has done, let's say, those three things to just relax. Like if anything else happened, it's, it's great. But the feeling pulled in multiple directions and feeling unhappy is largely an expectations game. Like if she feels like she's going to be doing a million other things and she's not because she's taking care of the one-year-old, then she's going to be unhappy. Whereas if she's like, okay, I just need to get these three things done today. She'll do those because, I mean, presumably the one-year-old does nap at some point, even if it's inconsistently. Um, she has a significant other. So that person is is working full-time for sure, but can also you know, contribute some on the evenings or early mornings or weekends or whatever. So she can have some time to do things. Um, but just keeping that really, really low. And then having something that just gets them out of the house to do something a little bit different so you don't feel like you're constantly just watching your kid play on the same toy kitchen as you're scrolling around on Instagram, it can help you feel better. Yeah, that's so true. I don't think I have that much to add, except that, you know, that it is such a, I think, I think the age of her kids says a lot. I think if the nine-year-old's probably not that much of a factor, but having a three, although if the nine-year-old is, I think you said doing online school, that kind of structures the day and, and sticks you in the house. And now you're stuck physically in the house with your three and one-year-old, um, which kind of adds to the stress perhaps, but having a three and one-year-old is a very difficult and trying combo. And I think that puttering around and surviving and waiting for it to be over is sort of, to some extent, just part of how it is for many of us. Um, but it does get better, like, relatively quickly. And that's no solace while you're in it. I get it. I remember it. But it's like, I mean, my kids aren't that much older, but I already feel like it's like 90,000 times. Like, I can do a lot more when they are occupied than I could just two years ago. And you will be able to, too. Yeah. Because you're going to have a three-year-old and a five-year-old in two years. So there you go. <laughs> and a four-year-old and six-year-old in three years. Um, and, and so that will open up a lot. So we'll do our love of the week now. I did ask Joanne for her love of the week at the end of the interview, but I'm pretty sure I forgot to give mine. Um, so Sarah, we'll, this gives us an opportunity to have Sarah do hers as well. Yes. So I really like the face masks from AG Jeans, which is really funny because they're a designer jeans company. But I got one of their masks free with a jeans order and was like, this is a great mask. And then looked up and I'm like, oh, you can also buy these. And now I have like four of them. And I either wear them like alone and they're like nice and breathable. And, you know, in a low risk situation, it's great. Or if I'm at work and I feel like I need to show that I'm being more conservative, I put on a um, surgical mask under it. And then that's kind of a nice, comfortable combo and they're great. So the face masks from AG Jeans. I will put a, a plug in here for um, a previous sponsor of this podcast, the Crayola School Mask Pack. Um, they sent us our first pack free back when we were advertising for them. And I have kept buying them because Alex will wear them. And he has to wear masks, obviously, all day at school. He's in full-time school five days a week. I was so nervous about this idea of like my energetic kindergartner, you know, he will, 
throw down a fight about like eating an apple. So I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to keep a mask on his face all day? And he has not said a peep about it. He likes them. He wears them. He's got his favorite colors. Um, so that's that's my love of the week there. It certainly made my life easier. We'll see though if we're out of this by, you know, everyone's like, oh, under two, right? And I'm like, oh yeah, under two, I have a baby. I'm like, wait, in 10 months, he won't be under two. <laughs> But maybe you won't need a mask. Maybe then. maybe we'll be back to normal by then. Uh, but you know, maybe I can convince him to wear one in crowded situations, and I'll never have a baby with a cold again. <laughs> It'll be fun. We buy the same ones, and that lends credence to our theory that most of our sponsors just want to make us customers, and they earn as much from our own purchases <laughs> that they do from any. Of you oh my gosh, the money I spend on Sunbasket now. <laughs> Anyway. All right. Well, this has been Best of Both Worlds. We've been talking with Joanne Lublin about Power Moms, also about camp spreadsheets and how to deal with long hours with a one-year-old and three-year-old. So we will be back next week with more on making work and life fit together. Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram. And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the Best of Both Worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.